1: Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you all for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed mazmi from Princeton University. Today I'm here to talk to Mahmoud Koria, Khadija uh, Khadr, and Sophia uh, Piceno about their special journal issue, Narrating Africa and South Asia, published in South Asia History and Culture Journal, uh, volume 11th, issue four in 2020. A few words about uh, our guest today, uh, Mahmoud Kriya is assistant professor at, uh, at the history department of Ashoka University. Earlier, he was a research fellow at the International Institute for Asian Studies. African Studies Center, Leiden, and the Dutch Institute in Morocco. He did his PhD at the Leiden University Institute for History on the circulation of Islamic legal ideas and texts across the Indian Ocean, which we will learn more about later, and Mediterranean worlds. With Michael Pearson, he has edited Malabar and the Indian Ocean World, Cosmopolitanism, in a maritime historical region published by oxford university press in 2018 his research specializations are pre-modern indian ocean world afro-asian connections matrilineal muslims and islamic legal history and the areas of broader research interest include the pre-modern interactions between abrahamic and indic religions global mobility of law and islamic intellectual history our second guest Khatija Qader completed her PhD, which titled Interrogating Identity, a study of Siddhi and Hadrami diaspora in Hyderabad City, India, at the School of International Studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Her PhD and publications explore the histories of migration of the Siddhis and the seafaring Hadrami diaspora in the Western Indian Ocean and engage with concepts like diaspora, race, and homeland or homelands in a non-Western location. In the past, uh, Dr. Qader has worked with various international non-governmental organizations like Amnesty International, Arab League, and the OHCHR on issues related to human rights, gender, and foreign policy. She is currently teaching at the Center for International Relations at the Islamic University of Science and Technology in Jammu and Kashmir. And she's joining us, actually, from there. Uh, Our third guest, uh, Sophia uh, Piquinot, is a PhD candidate and lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Toulouse, uh, 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 Jean-Jauré, France, uh, currently writing a dissertation entitled Black India, the Social Constructions of Siddhi's African Descendants in India. Her research focuses on Siddhi's ongoing processes of unification. These are based on a common identification with African origins, building on existing and newly emerging networks of Indians of African descent at different levels, which are local, regional, national, and transnational. She examines the various social constructions enabling these unification processes, reflecting the way Siddhi people are constructing and negotiating their place in Indian society, but also on an international level, an echo of other global movements. By discussing the special journal issue, narrating Africa and South Asia, we will explore, explore the multifaceted and long-duré history of the African diaspora in South Asia. The themes of the articles cover many grounds, such as race, religions, uh, social and intellectual history, space and place, social networks, and globality, memory studies, uh, and identity politics, among many other themes. In the introductory article, Mahmoud Kuriya wrote, and I'm quoting him, the historical and contemporary experiences of Afro-descents in South Asia are different from their North American and European counterparts on several fronts, even though they all experience similar trials of obligatory migration and forced labor, slavery and marginalization, etc. However, in South Asia, racism is Constructed uh, debating point among uh, uh, constructed debating point among scholars and activists, while its existence is largely rejected or downplayed in the public sphere. The Afro descendants have been at the receiving end of various racist and, and racial and racialist discriminations, and their experiences resonate with many other systematic conundrums in the region. Welcome Mahmoud, Khadija and Sophia to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you all for taking the time to join the podcast. Uh, I would like to, and as the listeners, would like to know uh, a bit about yourself, if you may say a few words uh, about yourself beyond what I said uh, in terms of where you grew up, how you became interested uh, in Africa and India, connections across the Indian Ocean, and if you would like to mention any scholars and mentors and books that shaped your thinking please do uh, any of you can go first yeah
2: okay uh, maybe uh, i'll start and then you know others can join in so i originally come from Caroline, southern india uh, and my interest in the indian ocean uh, world probably started my upbringing in a region that was not very far away from the uh, arabian sea and uh, however i don't remember seeing a sea until my uh, teenage, early teenage, and uh, eventually once I uh, went to Jawaharlal Nehru University, where did I, where I did my masters in the ancient Indian history. Uh, I sort of ex- uh, got opportunities to explore different uh, venues or different potentials uh, of the Indian Ocean as a analytical framework. I I was fortunate to do two uh, courses with uh, Professor Yogesh Sharma. At that time, uh, on the Indian Ocean world in the medieval period, and eventually, I also at that time we had a very good gathering in J- JNU Although they were coming from not necessarily from the history department, but mostly from international relations or uh, from languages and literature and so forth, all of them were very interested in the in the sort of work that were going uh, around at that time. And I also had the opportunity to read. Uh, Yang Sung Ho's Graves of Tareem, a work that, you know, sort of uh, influenced uh, the way in which, uh, you know, Indian Ocean uh, could be uh, explored further. So, but still, uh, I couldn't pursue, I didn't pursue uh, after, even for my MPhil. Where at that time, I was mostly looking at the Western cards, mostly the... Uh, through, from, through uh, an archaeological landscape, archaeological perspective, and uh, combining with the uh, history, early medieval and early modern history. So uh, eventually, once, once I came to Leiden, and that's when I got the full opportunity to explore the uh, breadth uh, and depth of Indian Ocean through different archives and uh, materials when I did my PhD uh, on the circulation of Islamic law uh, in the Indian Ocean world, where I looked at the uh, history of Shafi School of Law and why and how Shafi School of Law sort of became important. And that sort of fascination continued, and I'm still, uh, you know, very uh, fascinated. Uh, the different kind of uh, uh, promises or, you know, different kinds of, pressures that the Indian Ocean still provides in terms of, you know, stories, narratives, shared cultures, exchanges, uh, languages, and so forth. Yeah, that is what uh, sort of a short uh, biographical, you know, trajectory, so to speak. Yeah.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, Khatija or Sophia, if you would like to go to next.
3: Um, I can go next. So uh, I grew up, uh, I, I was born in Hyderabad, but I grew up all over India um, because uh, my father was in a government job. And um, most of the times I would be the only uh, Muslim child in my school, in my class, in my neighborhood. Um, then for my college, after my school, uh, my schooling finished in New Delhi, I went to uh, the US. And that was the time around which 9-11 happened. And there was this whole debate around the idea of radical Islam, fundamentalism, what it meant to be Muslim. Um, There was a constant sort of, um, um, at that point, uh, as a, as a as a young person, as a young student who was doing her bachelor's in the U.S., I also wanted to, I engaged with my identity, my Muslim identity, what it meant, etc. So from the very start, uh, there has been an interest, as far as I'm concerned, in what it means to be a Muslim and uh, what it means to follow Islam, Islam and Muslim being two different sort of uh, heuristic categories, uh, uh, essentially. So, um... My initial interest, I would say, uh, in, in uh, Muslim identity um, uh, comes from the trajectory my life has had, especially because um, I've never really, I've not been an enrooted uh, person. I have always been uh, all over uh, while growing up and even today. So I think that has had a big impact on um, on why I chose this uh, subject. But um When I started reading on Muslim identity, especially during my MPhil and PhD, um, I realized that most of the time scholars were approaching it from the same sort of similar tropes of either syncretism or this focus on local registers. So if you want to understand uh, different groups, say within South Asia or within the boundaries of India today, you would have to sort of focus on the local registers of these groups, how they uh, cognize themselves, what kind of practices, customs are followed, etc., there was this whole idea of the third space and it seemed to me that it was inadequate because I I think that Muslim identity is rationalized, cognized, realized in a more complex way. Um, It is uh, more than just being fundamental, it is more than just being local, Uh, it is more than just being syncretic. Uh, So um the whole idea of transregional uh, transregionalism uh, was um, very very important uh, to how I wanted I I sort of saw engaging myself with this identity and that is where my interest in Indian Ocean came from because I was born in Hyderabad which is part of the Deccan uh, plateau which is uh, the peninsular part of India and uh, I realized that uh, the uh, that uh, the peninsular part of India has uh, had a long history of uh, um, interaction of uh, mobility of uh, connections with other parts of the world, and I wanted to see how identity, especially Muslim identity, has been uh, negotiated by different groups in uh, living uh, in 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 um in the peninsular part of India. So I picked uh, uh, so for my research, I came to Hyderabad, and uh, there were two distinct communities that lived in Hyderabad. One was. Uh, the siddhis and the other were the hadramis who uh, are uh, arab uh, indians and of course afro indians and i wanted to sort of see how is it that they understand themselves because if you were to if you speak to uh, many uh, uh, siddhis and hadramis uh, in in uh, in hyderabad they still uh, um, see themselves as uh, distinct from the Uh, dominant population, both Muslim and otherwise. And uh, they have constructed a different narrative around their identity. So um, this was very interesting because it was also happening at a time when, especially for a student in IR, we were getting exposed to discourses coming out of Europe and America on multiculturalism, on diaspora, on the idea of assimilation, on Uh, on what virtues or what values are to be privileged as desirable and what are to be rejected as undesirable for a diasporic community, and this whole sort of stress on how to assimilate. So when I looked at the discourses that we live under in our modern period and how diasporas of long duration have negotiated these in spaces in non-western spaces like hyderabad for centuries now it uh, it um, sort of uh, became a research question i wanted to uh, engage with so uh, i i uh, this was uh, central to my um uh my sort of interest in in the subject and also uh, i uh, just um the idea of mobility is so central to islam uh, if you know islamic calendar begins with the hijri so mobility has been very central to how islam has not only spread but has also um has also defined itself so um i also wanted to understand how mobility uh impacts uh the regions where uh islamic uh, culture or dynasties or um rulers have uh have lived so that is broadly the trajectory
1: of my research. Mm-hmm. Very fascinating and interesting. Uh, thank you. Uh, what about you, Sophia?
0: <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, you please apologize me for my accent and my uh, English, as I did not go to English medium school or University. (laughs) So to give a bit more background about myself, I'm now 33. I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Paris, where I lived until I was 20. I was always in the public school system and grew up uh, alongside friends of very diverse social and cultural backgrounds, and uh, in particular, children whose parents were from West Africa, mainly from Mali, Senegal, Congo, or Cameroon, but also from North Africa and West Indies. Uh, In contrast to what was happening uh, at the national level in France, there was a microcosm in the Parisian suburbs where having African origin was something to be asserted with pride and a source of power and strength. On the other hand, being white with a French ancestry was not in the suburbs of Paris. Uh, It would have been better perceived, for example, to have the Spanish or Italian or Portuguese origins. Um, I grew up in a climate where racism directed at African people was widely and uh, openly criticized in a response to the constant persecution from the police directed at young people from Africa or Caribbean backgrounds. Um, it was a reaction to the racial profiling, which was a part of their daily lives, but also to the struggle to find work being constantly uh, considered at, as foreigners in their own society. In this environment, in the suburbs, where it was uh, like a sort of reverser of power and of the system among young people, uh, whereby people's origin were proudly affirmed and protected them. However, there was uh, violence too. We also lived in a very negative atmosphere in which being in trouble brought you more respect because it meant that you had a harder life or less to lose. But this place where I grew up inspired me and it opened a lot my mind. For all of us, children and teenagers at that time, we were all the same, despite any differences. We were friends, or boyfriends and girlfriends, and we shared our lives. White racial discrimination has always left me extremely shocked, and from a young age, I understood that the violence of asserting one's origin and the re- re- rejection sorry, of friends and white people was caused by deeper social problems, where society at large treated people descendants from its former colonies as, as if they did not belong to. After finishing my secondary school, I decided not to go to university and instead went to a music school as I was passionate about singing. I felt at odds with the new Parisian world that I was discovering, which was a step in French culture and music when most of my own references were hip hop and RB. I would have preferred to study jazz, but at the time I did not know it. On singing teacher, one singing teacher recommended uh, me to apply to Berkeley in the US, but I did not speak any word of English at that time. I looked into becoming an oper in England, but a career advisor convinced me to go to Australia instead because English lessons were more cheaper. I worked hard to pay for this trip and when I left, uh, it was my first time traveling. I took uh, lessons like for three months, found a job and decided to stay there. I was inspired by the young travelers I met and I wanted to discover the world as well. As well. I worked uh, as a waitress and babysitter about 75 hours a week for a month so I could travel around, around the world. Then I traveled in Asia, in Latin America and there. Uh, it was my first discovery of anthropology when I met some ethnologists in the Amazon. Until that point, I was unaware this field even existed. I then went to Senegal, where one of my childhood friends was getting married. And in 2009, I came back to France to study, but also I was wishing to pick up uh, singing again. I knew I never wanted to go back to Paris because I spent time away and uh, from that, that stress and that violence. I discovered an overworld, by that point, more diverse. I started my degree in the age of 22 in Toulouse, and I was a distant course as I needed to work odd jobs, mainly in hospitality, to get by. My father passed away from cancer during my first year, and as I was uh, wrapped up in family responsibilities and work, I never started music again, but I was determined to get my degree. I managed to get a small grant to pursue my third year in Barcelona, where I ended up staying a year and a half. In Barcelona, I was shocked to discover that all black people there I met were either street vendors or tourists from other countries. In Spain, racism targeting African people is very present. And whereas there is more space for social mobility in France, African people in Spain can often find themselves limited to this kind of work. The condition of black people in Spain made me want to know more, and I carried out my research field work for my undergraduate dissertation with Senegalese street vendors in Barcelona, uh, which was a very enlightening experience. My partner was about to travel to South Korea at that time uh, to train to acupuncture, so I decided to work full-time in Barcelona and uh, in a call center after after my degree, and to be able to join him. I worked for a bit uh, in Korea, and then uh, we took off for India. My partner were, one, went back by, went by by home, sorry, <laughs> he went back home, sorry, and uh, to work, and uh, I remained for four months uh, to discover India and a bit Nepal. Uh, it was in Gujarat that I first met with city people. I was surprised to discover that there were also African descendants in India. My first question was how CD people are considered and treated there. On my return to France, I began a master's degree in social anthropology, and for my research dissertation, I wrote about CD people in India. Thus, in 2014, I returned to India without having any contact whatsoever, and then again in 2015. Everything that CD people I met shared with me opened up many questions, which required the scope of a doctorate to explore further. Indeed, CD networks that were in place and developing at the regional, national, and transnational levels made me realize that those processes of identification and unification needed a deeper research. I began my PhD in September 2015 at the University, Public University of Toulouse, uh, Toulouse Jean Jaurès, and uh, I was lucky enough to get a funded over three years so that I did not have to work in the other fields. Between 2014 and 20, I have carried about 16 months of field work over six different trips with Siddhi people in Karnataka, Gujarat, and some in Mumbai and in Hyderabad. I also talked anthropology between 2016 and 18. I had a baby in 2019, and I returned to India in the field work, uh, both when I was pregnant and with my one-year-old child in 2020. I was inspired by the life of the people I met, as you can see, and especially by their social life experience and inspiration. However, my thesis director, Fabienne Martin, was working on the social construction of leapers in India. Uh, she inspired me too, but also respected the direction of my own work was taking and gave me leeway to follow my intuition and my fieldwork. I'm very grateful to her for guiding and supporting me with such benevolence. I was also lucky enough to meet Washington Obeng, Bihero Shroff and Jasmine Graves, thanks to city people who connected us. And those scholars also inspired me and were all uh, a real pleasure to discuss with. I was also mm-hmm. inspired to end uh, in my research reading the words of Ellen Basu, Washington Oben, Beheh Roshroff, Kiran Kamal Prashad, Henry John Drill, Charles Kamara, and Prita Samedi Meyers about uh, how CD have shaped their community and identities.
1: Indeed. Uh, uh, th- thank you. Thank you for sharing. Uh, thank you all for sharing these uh, uh, fascinating bi- biographies. Um, and they really, I think, help the readers to situate the scholarship and connected to the positionality of of the writers, so if um, if ever somebody wants to write a book, hopefully any of you should actually include their some of their background and positionality in, in their historical writings. That, that's always useful uh, for us as readers. Um, so let's now turn to the, to the issue uh, narrating Africa and South Asia. Uh, I would like to know how did the idea for the special issue. Uh, develop, uh, if if any of you would like to share anecdotes of how it came about, and for the editor, how did you select uh, and s- solicit and organize the articles? I'm really curious how such a diverse range of scholars came together to produce this issue.
2: Uh, thank you, Ahmed. Uh, it was fascinating to listen to my co-panelists uh, uh, to hear their stories. Uh, yeah, especially with regard to you know the ways in which they came to uh, to the field of you know studying the, uh, Africans in India. So the uh, specifically uh, for the special issue, it came out of a, a panel that I had uh, convened and shared uh, back in 2018 uh, in a conference at uh, organized by International Institute for Asian Studies in collaboration with. University of Dar es Salaam, among, uh, among many other institutes, as part of this uh, Africa-Asia, a new axis of knowledge, uh, sort of, a, uh, I think they organize it every uh, two years or three years, every three years. And the first session was in Senegal, and the second one was in, uh, in Dar es Salaam. So we had a panel there specifically looking at uh, African narratives or narratives on Africa, in the cultural and literary uh, spheres of Kerala, so Kerala, the western coasts of uh, South Asia at large, and eastern coasts of Africa uh, have been uh, two natural arms of the Arabian Sea, with you know voyages uh, aided by the wings of the monsoon winds, you could say. So both these coastal belts uh, in the coast of South Asia, in the western coast of South Asia, as well as in the eastern coast of Africa uh, and their hinterlands have historically shared a number of cultural trades, commodities, commands and cosmologies. The forced and voluntary migrations of Asians and Africans across the Indian Ocean uh, over several centuries have reverberate, uh, reverberated in the memories, literatures, travelogues, you know, you you name it, in, in many in political imaginations and so forth of both these regions. Uh, but uh, in the existing studies or in the existing narratives, uh, very rarely people talk about this sort of connections, historical connections. So that panel specifically was an attempt to look at, like, you know, uh, in the context of Kerala, uh, how you know the uh, africa or africans have uh, been depicted in the uh, local literature in the films in the songs in the in the folklore and so forth and we had very fascinating uh, three four papers uh, at that time and the issue the idea of issue came came out of that panel unfortunately only uh, uh, one person out of the other panel uh, out of the four Five panelists managed to submit their articles in time, which is a usual trajectory with most of the edited volumes and special issues. So Neelima Jayachandran, who uh, has an article in the special issue, she was there at the panel as well. And others, uh, you know, from the University of Kerala, uh, from University of Calicut, from uh, Sanskrit, uh, Sanskrit University, uh, and so forth. Unfortunately, they couldn't submit their papers. And at that time, I thought, you know, it would be better to expand beyond uh, the limits of Kerala and to see, uh, you know, the larger uh, trajectories uh, of what was happening uh, in India at large. And at that time, especially in two thousand, late 2018 and 2019, there were uh, a lot of attacks against uh, the uh, people of African origin. Either, you know, recent migrants or old uh, migrants. Uh, uh, all sort of different violent attacks on this uh, community. So I thought like, you know, uh, basically having a uh, discussion. I in India, rarely people talk about, as I explained in the introduction, people very rarely talk about the idea uh, of the, you know, racism. Castism is something, as a, even as an analytical category, Caste has uh, developed uh, much uh, strongly in anthropology, in history, in, in sociology, and in several fields in, in the Indian subcontinent. Whereas uh, race and racism is still, like you know, uh, discussed in a in a very nominal, uh, in a very marginal way so uh, having a, a detailed discussion on race as well as like you know with the question of african africans uh, uh, i thought it would be better to expand beyond that and i was very fortunate that you know all the contributors while i approached different uh, contributors uh, uh many of them were immediately you know positive and supportive of the idea and that's how the idea of special issue sort of got materialized and then the uh, editor of South Asian History and Culture, two editors, particularly uh, Dr. Sharmista Guptu, was very supportive of the idea. And then through the review process and so forth, it went very well. And we are very happy that it, uh, you know, got materialized. And also I would say, yeah, as I said, that initially it started off uh, from Kerala as a uh, a panel on Kerala and then it uh, uh, expanded to Oh, uh, all all over India, uh, but also beyond, we have very uh, nice contribution by Shrihande Silva, the Surya, also contributed a, a piece on Sri Lanka. So, although it would have been great to have, you know, this larger, a larger South Asian perspective, like uh, there are these Siddhi communities in in Pakistan, you know, I believe also in uh, Bangladesh and so forth. But unfortunately, we didn't uh, manage to go beyond uh, India, uh, except for the uh, work uh, on Sri Lanka. But I think this is an area uh, and a conversation uh, that you know more, uh, more debates, more uh, conversations should happen uh, in the subcontinent, in, in in India, in South Asia, at large, so that you know people have better awareness of the shared cultures, shared you know. Cultural traits and the shared trajectories of these, of both continents, and the ways in which they uh, exchange uh, and continue to exchange uh, ideas, uh, people, uh, and languages and histories across the time. Yeah.
1: Indeed. Yeah. I mean, this is very understudied and underexplored area of research. And uh, such an issue would, would, I would say, open the door for others. Uh, to to follow up and to explore other issues that uh, the issue haven't touched upon. Um, Now let's turn to to the special issue and its architecture. Um, The special issue narrating Africa and South Asia, which is a great title, by the way, consists of eight articles uh, with an introduction. The introductory article uh, introduces the interventions of of the issue. Um, So if you would share a few words about um what are these interventions about how africa and africans uh, should uh, be written in south asian history um if you can offer also an overview of the special issue and its articles
2: uh yeah uh, definitely uh, so uh, as i was mentioning uh, you know largely even though there isn't much uh, discussion on on the african africans in, in south asian departments of South Asian universities and institutions, still many uh, scholars have worked extensively on these communities, Uh, you know, especially from the 1990s onward. uh, We have different monographs uh, on particular figures, uh, such as, like, you know, the most influential figure, for example, uh, Malik Umber, uh, who was an Abyssinian mercenary who rose uh, in the ranks uh, in deccan in the 17th century so on him we have at least three three works including the latest work by Omar H, professor Omar H Ali from uh, you know who has written a book on the on Malikambar, but also several other scholars but largely, The existing studies have been very much. I also mentioned this in the introduction there have been like you know five major trends. I am not going to the details of these five different categories, uh, scholarly categories, uh, uh, or the works uh, you know that look at uh, look into the Asia Africa uh, connection, particularly with regard to South Asia. But largely, we could say uh, we could say that you know there are these. Two uh, emphasis on the role of Africans as either slaves uh, in the subcontinent, uh, which was a very uh, brutal uh, exercise, a brutal you know practice in the in the uh, in the military uh, and military and political and domestical uh, realms, and then also uh, the mercenary aspects, So either slavery or mercenary uh, practices. These were two major areas in which. Most of the uh, works have focused. Whereas this issue sort of takes up, like, you know, uh, a stock of, you know, the narratives of these community of the, either the living communities or the historical actors and how they are depicted in the different uh, platforms, uh, you know, either in literature, in the narrate- in the popular memories, or in the films, or in, in newspaper articles. So, Benjamin Cohen's the uh first article if i remember no, uh this yeah first article i believe in the in the special issue by benjamin Cohen uh looks at the newspaper narratives in in hyderabad as part of this langar procession in the in the 19th and early 20th century and uh, uh and then uh shihan uh, shihan silva she looks at the musical uh musical representations on or how you know African Africans have depicted or influenced sri lankan uh, you know musical genre called Kafirinya. so how how you know uh, these depictions uh, influence and and then we also have like you know further uh, explorations into the geographical as well as spatial uh realms architecture you know and how you know uh, so Baharu's strophe and Sonal Mahata look at, you know, space and belonging and how architect- specific architectural monuments as well as uh, graveyards and so forth in, in Gujarat, how they are very important for the Siddhi community in Gujarat. And uh, Neelima Jayachandran also compares Gujarat, the cases in Gujarat, along with uh, with Kerala. Uh, and uh, how uh, the deities and saints uh, dedicated to the African figures or sorry, shrines uh, dedicated to the African deities uh, and saints sort of still play an important role in the making of the or in the narratives of the you know uh, living communities uh, living uh, African community the Siddhi community or otherwise you know and how they influence uh, in the existing uh, narratives and uh, Khadija and Sophia both of them are here to talk about their own contributions, so yeah, but they also uh, sort of, you know, uh, clearly show how you know these different narratives about the African community uh, from within the community as well as from outside sort of formulated this uh, larger understandings of the of uh, of the uh, society of the community so i think at, uh, and also at last we have this uh, the last piece is a co-authored piece by Fayana and jamal almeida and washington open uh, washington uh, who is an established scholar who has written extensively on the african uh, community or the Sidi community in in the, in the context of karnataka so both of them look at you know how the sidi community formulate uh, their identities uh, with regard to marriage and marriage becomes an important site in which, you know, the identity of the race or, or the language or, you know, or family, all sort of these identities become very important. Uh, uh, and you uh, negotiate or, you know, the members of the community negotiate with these identities during uh, during the marriage uh, in preparation to the marriage or during the marriage or after the marriage. So, uh, taken together, the whole issue sort of collects uh, presents a fascinating uh, diversity of the narratives in which the African communities, and the living as well as the historical communities, have uh, uh, you know have underwent uh, or, or have undergone in the in the last few centuries.
1: Yeah. Thank you for this uh, very generous overview. And there is much more to, to unpack and read. And we are lucky to have uh, t- two authors uh, of these eight articles. Uh, the first one, uh, Translocal Notions of Belonging and Authenticity, Understanding Race Amongst the cities of Gujarat and Hyderabad by uh, Khatija. So I would like to ask you first as an introductory question um, who are the cities? Um So we know that African descent communities are scattered across the Western Indian Ocean, across Southern Arabia and Yemen, Oman, and Persian Gulf, Southern Iran, uh, regions of Balochistan, Sen, Gujarat, Karnataka, Malabar, to Hyderabad, under very different names, subsumed under different ethno-cultural uh, sort of identity markers, speaking many languages, adhering to different religions. Um, so it's a quite diverse community, but in, in the South Asian context, the Siddhi, uh, ethnonym, you may call it, uh, takes on to be an identifying marker. So who are the Siddhis within the South Asian context? And what are the roles of, of race and professional occupations in the historical process of forming belonging dynamics, notion of authenticity, and social cohesion in Hyderabad and Gujarat as you examine in your article.
3: Um, Thank you so much, Ahmed. And thank you, Mahmoud and Sophia for your um, introductions as well. Um, So, uh, Siddhis, so as you know, historically, uh, South Asia is linked to Africa. Even today, as we speak in Hyderabad, there's multiple African communities that come as students who settle down as doctors, engineers, etc., sometimes marry locally. So when I began the my PhD, when I began my research, this was a question that uh, I posed to myself as well. Because, like I said in my introduction, my approach to my PhD was from exploring the idea of what it means to be a Muslim. So I was looking for specific Muslim communities who are um, a, a specific Muslim communities in this context that are different, yet uh, might share um, or might ascribe to, uh, subscribe to uh, similar uh, ideas. So to this question, I would say for the purpose of my research, I uh, I have understood Siddhis as an African diaspora of long durée, who moved to the subcontinent uh, sometime during the early colonial period. Of course, it is true that uh, communities of African descent live all over um, um, the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, They are scattered, uh, completely assimilated at some point, speak various languages, have different um, uh, food registers, um, cultures, customs, etc. But Siddhis, this marker with which, um, in the case of South Asia, Pakistan and India and uh, Sri Lanka, uh, we uh, speak of Siddhis. I think this is a particular moment in history when certain uh, settlements started emerging distinct racial religious settlements of communities of african descent started emerging in south asia as far as hyderabad is concerned um african cavalry guards uh, or ac guards the neighborhood where Siddhis are concentrated is a neighborhood that uh, emerges sometime in the 19th century right so uh, we know that um uh, in, 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 in the context of Hyderabad at least, that uh, the movement of uh, African um, people was there since the time of the Kuli Qutubs, the first Muslim dynasty. And uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is evident in the names of neighborhoods in Hyderabad. So names of historic neighborhoods in Hyderabad uh, include uh, Hapshi or Siddhi Pet, etc. Uh, there is Siddhi Ambar Bazaar. So we have, in the geography of Hyderabad, the presence of uh, communities or people of African descent. But when is it that a distinct settlement emerged? And I think that is uh, the key to answering who the Siddhis are. Siddhis are people, uh, or uh, Siddhis is uh, a set of communities uh, living in four or five different states of India now who have um, retained certain racial markers and certain religious markers. And... uh, for the purpose of scholarship or for the purpose of uh, or uh, or in the, um as knowledge is produced about them we ascribe the category Siddhis to them and uh knowledge production is something i'll discuss a bit later in my um in my um in my um description of the article but I think knowledge production is something that we should never undermine especially when we are talking about identity because we as scholars and uh or members of a community that produce um that produce and frame discourse we also uh, have a large great influence on how identities sometimes um uh, realize themselves and the trajectories um Ah, uh, policies take and the trajectories that uh, communities take. So I think knowledge production is very, very important, especially in the context of race and in the context of who the Siddhis are. But to put it simply, Siddhis I, for the purpose of my research are African. Uh, it's, it's the African diaspora of long duration. It's different from the Africans who are uh, people of African uh, origin who are coming to um, the peninsular part of India at this juncture. Uh, these are uh, communities that have settled here for a long, long time. And uh, have uh maintained distinct markers as opposed to those who've come and assimilated and um, have become uh, just um part of the larger fabric of Hyderabad, uh, so to speak. Um, so the African uh, populations, um, as we know in in the context of India, have varied beginnings and have very distinct presence. So when you have varied beginnings and very distinct presence, how is it that you can apply a category? A category called Siddhi to people, um, Siddhi being Afro-Indian uh, diaspora uh, of long duration. So, this was the question I started with, and um, as it evolved, I realized that most of these communities have adapted to local languages, foods, customs, etc. I really wanted to understand what it is, uh, how is it that they understand the uh, idea of Africa, Um, what is homeland, what is host society, Uh, do they even understand the idea of a diaspora do they ascribe subscribe to the uh, idea of a diaspora? Do they see themselves as a diaspora? Do others, uh, the other dominant uh, identities in their local community, see them as a diaspora? So these were questions that I began with vis-a-vis the Siddhis. And for that, I did fieldwork in Gujarat and Hyderabad. Gujarat being an interesting site because it is something that is very well documented. There's many articles on Gujarat. Many scholars, many journalists, many uh, intellectuals have accessed uh, um um, Gujarat uh, in the past, especially to understand uh, the Afro-Indian Siddhi identity. So much has been written about it. So I thought it would be an interesting contrast to Hyderabad because Hyderabad as a site is just starting to uh, be written about in a sense and not much has been documented in the scholarly sense on Hyderabadi uh, Siddhis. And um I realized that Siddhis uh, understood, negotiated, and imagined their racial and religious identities very differently in all these places. Um, and um, by extension, the Siddhi identity held very, very different meanings to other populations living alongside them in these different locations. So to begin with, for example, in Hyderabad, um, I Siddhis call themselves as Chaush. Uh, so, in Hyderabad, if you were to go and ask around uh, where Chahush people live, there's probably two neighborhoods you would be pointed to. One is where the Hadramis live, which is in the older part of the city um, called Barkas. Uh, Barkas is uh, a colloqu- colloquial spin on the word barracks because H- Hadramis came to Hyderabad as mercenaries and they would live in barracks. And look in in the local pronunciations, barracks became Barkas. And the other neighborhood you would be pointed to would be AC guards. So Siddhis understand themselves as Chawush, a uh, ethnonym or a or or um or a marker that Hadramis also use for themselves. So in the context of Hyderabad, it's very clear that the Siddhis uh, define themselves as an Afro-Arab community, um, which is a sharp contrast to, say, how the Siddhis in Gujarat uh, describe themselves or imagine themselves. So I'll come to that in a bit. But if you were to see their multiple similarities, there are multiple similarities between um, a Siddhis, um, of uh, uh, between, uh, multiple similarities between siddhis and hadramis uh, for example uh, siddhis and hadramis in hyderabad both wear uh, similar clothes which is the sarongs that are produced in indonesia and then from the looms of indonesia they are taken to gulf and um, sort of exported from saudi arabia and the uae um, uh, two different parts of the Islamic world. So both the Chaush communities in Hyderabad where these distinct uh, sarungs, which can be easily identified, they also play similar drums, uh, which is the daf and the marfa drum. These are drums very distinct from the other musical instruments that Siddhis in Karnataka, Maharashtra or rat's play which are drums that can be traced to the eastern uh, East African coast very easily but uh, with the DAF and the Marfa drums you can see that it's a it's a liminal uh, existence it's the existence on the threshold you can see that how it is not so simple sometimes to describe identities only in local registers or uh, as something um, that is syncretic um, uh, a- or something that got polluted as it became localized. Um, So these drums become a very, very interesting site because both these communities earn their livelihood sometimes by playing the daf and the marfa drums. And you can see when you're interacting with the Siddhis and the Hadramis in Hyderabad that there's contestation over the claims on who claims these drums. The Hadramis, of course, claim them as their own, as Arab. And the Siddhis claim them as their own, as Afro Arab. So um, in Hyderabad, uh, as far as the Siddhi identity goes, it became very clear to me that it was a Understood uh, as uh, um, as Afro Arab identity. And also, the Muslim um, religious identity for Siddhis in Hyderabad is very important. They um, There is no demand from within the community for a scheduled tribe status. This is something that multiple scholars have written about vis a vis Siddhis in Karnataka and Gujarat, where there's been a potent movement to ask for the tri- tribal status. In Hyderabad, if you were to interact with the Siddhis, they would clearly state that. Uh, They uh, see themselves as Muslims and uh, do not want the tribal status. Further, they are also Shafai Muslims, which is very distinct from the dominant uh, Hanafi uh, uh, Hanafi, uh, school that is practiced by the rest of uh, the Muslims, most of the Dakini Muslims in in Hyderabad. So both Hadramis and Siddhis are Shafai, uh, and Shafai. they see the, uh, the Siddhi community sees itself primarily as a Muslim community and racially distinct Muslim community at that, but not a tribal community. And most of uh, Siddhis, as form of political assertion, if there is any, uh, they, um, they sort of practice that by voting for AIMIM, which is... Um, which is all India, Ittehadul muslimin It's a party that represents uh, the Muslim minority in various parts of the country, wherever it stands for election or claims to do so, at least. So we see that in, in Hyderabad, there's a different sort of political, socio-political trajectory uh, that uh, Siddhis take and also have a very distinct imagination of their present. Um, we uh, say Siddhis in Gujarat. So my interaction with Siddhis in Gujarat was very interesting. I travelled there with a... a Ethnolinguist uh, uh, fr- um, uh, from Uppsala University, uh, Professor Lodi. and we held a workshop uh, in which we were documenting Siddhi Jikris or Zikars in, um, in 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 um, in honor of the uh, in honor of the Prophet and especially Baba Gore so during uh, the workshop i got to meet siddhis uh, for a protracted time it was a long workshop about a week long uh, from different parts of uh, gujarat and certain things became very clear to me for example one distinct sort of um, um, one distinct um, realization that siddhis have in gujarat is the idea of what is authentic they believe that they are the authentic the real tribal inhabitants of um of of the land where they live, which is Gujarat, so there's a conflation in terms of the discourse that has been used by the tribal communities to justify um, or to uh, or to negotiate politically. We see similar tropes have been taken on by Siddhis in Gujarat, where uh, where uh, they are arguing uh, on term in terms of indigeneity, in terms of the authentic inhabitants, the um, the old inhabitants, uh, the tribal inhabitants. And um, there's a demand for scheduled tribe status, uh, which is um, uh, very important to the political sort of uh, assertion that the Siddhi identity in various parts of Gujarat is pushing for. The other sort of distinction between uh, the Siddhis in both uh, Hyderabad and Gujarat was that uh, the Siddhis in Gujarat have had a longer interaction with academics, with journalists, and with, um, with just the outside world, with media as a whole. And uh, one sees that this is important because this is where the question of knowledge production comes in. Because through this interaction, um, many Siddhis have been able to uh, develop an imagination of Africa. Many people I, uh, that we interacted with during uh, the documentation of the Jikris, uh said that they wanted to learn Swahili because they believed that uh, their ancestors were from that part of uh, the east african coast but um there is no clear indication uh that and the ancestry of different people would have been from uh that par- particular part of the african uh, east african coast so one sees that certain uh, ideas of africa have also been developed in uh in in, in the city population of uh, of gujarat vis-a-vis what africa is and vis-a-vis what their indigenity is, um, and that's that is important because um, when we are talking about race, uh, how we imagine our racial identities, uh, I think these small nuances have a, uh, have a, have a bearing on it. So uh, the other thing is that uh, because uh, the cities in um, in in uh, Gujarat have also been exposed to the media for a long, long time, uh, they um, they have. Imbibe certain ideas of African representation. These are very oriental representations, oriental imagination of Africans in uh, feather skirts and uh, painted faces, morphed faces. And of course, uh, uh, media in India has consumed, depicted, and constructed Siddhis and Gujarat like that, like this spectacle to be consumed, this very uh, Oriental African uh, depiction of uh, of the city community, and to a great extent, the Goma dancers uh, and the outfits of the Goma dancers in uh, in, in Gujarat uh, have sort of imbibed this as well. When you come, for example, in contrast, if you come to Hyderabad. Other factors have influenced how Siddhis have constructed their identities. Mostly, that being um, the trajectory that the state of Hyderabad has taken after police action in 1948, their identification more with the Muslim identity uh, rather than with uh, the um, with the idea of indigeneity. So that is not to say that um, there is no racial um, uh, there's no racism or that siddhis in both these sites do not understand or uh, or um, face racism they do but i think that uh, how uh, the siddhis in different uh, loca- in different localities are able to cognize race and how different communities around them cognize race are dependent on these certain factors these certain nuances um, that are very very important another very important thing that uh, uh, for me as part of my research on Siddhis, is the site of the Afro-Arab identity, specifically in context of Hyderabad. Uh, And I think it is important because it allows us to um, uh, engage with different ideas, uh, with with the notions of authenticity, this whole sort of stress that when we are uh, researching or writing about identity, the stress that one places on on, on notions of authenticity, what is authentic? uh, what is what is real muslim what is real siddhi what is a real uh, diaspora and i think these insights get fractured in the indian ocean uh, as a non-Western location that has seen mobility, that has seen communities move around, settle uh, in different parts for centuries now, I think Indian Ocean fractures the idea of authenticity. And the Afro-Arab community, this the Siddi community of Hyderabad is a potent site for that, where everything uh, authentic gets fractured. Um, and um, the local and the global uh, sort of merge together um, and become a very sort of... Uh, Generative site uh, for one to engage with, and to understand this, I sort of proposed the um, the uh, a concept called informed accommodation, because I think that this whole, at least as uh, within international relations and within um, within um, understanding how uh, diaspora uh, identity should be uh, correctly negotiated. Uh, Engaged with, etc. I think this whole stress on assimilation and accommodation in multiculturalism, in liberal and conservative theories that are coming out of Europe and the Western, uh, the global North, uh, the the Western universities, is uh, not adequate to understand what is happening in, in in sites like the Indian Ocean. And I think informed accommodation sort of uh, allows us to uh, engage with what happens uh, in in and around the Indian Ocean. So informed accommodation, as far as my research goes, is something that I understand as multiple frames and modes of accommodation, which are neither borrowed from nor are restricted by limited debates around multiculturalism and assimilation in the West. Informed accommodation in modernity is is realized locally. Um, and by, claim, and by claiming to be a member of a larger regional or global identity. It is not restricted by modern discourse, uh, yet it is informed by it. Um, it. This approach finds Western ideas of homeland and host society very limiting, because uh, if you were to see diasporic communities, if we were to at all understand these communities, through the modern concept of diaspora. If you were to see these communities, this whole idea of uh, homeland and host society makes no sense. If you were to interact with Siddhis in Hyderabad, they will ask you, what is your vatan? Vatan means homeland. And by that, they're not asking you your country. They're basically asking which village or which city or town you are from. And if you were to ask a Siddhis or a Hadrami in Hyderabad, what, which is your vatan, they would also give you very uh, uh, different answers. The answers would not be Yemen or Hadhramut or India or Hyderabad. They would probably give you more localized answers. So, I think that um, when we are dealing with non-Western locations, I think these sites can actually allow us to engage with mobility and with uh, what we understand as diaspora itself in a more generative and more uh, progressive way. So, that is basically uh, the crux of the article.
1: Indeed, thank you so much for uh, taking us through the article, but also your broader research on the cities uh, in Hyderabad. and Hyderabad. Now we move uh, to another article by uh, written by Mahmoud Korea, Eastern African Doin's in South Asia, pre-modern Islamic intellectual interactions. So, slavery and military labor are the dominant associations and frameworks for writing the history of the African diaspora in South Asia, starting with Malik Ambar, as you've mentioned. How does your article intervene by drawing on alternative frameworks, sources, and methodologies to foreground overlooked roles and sites for African history in South Asia, such as intellectual, legal, and religious networks? Uh, Can you illustrate that uh, with the examined historical actors uh, in your article?
2: Uh, yes definitely uh, this is also you know, as you uh, rightly pointed out uh, there is this uh, larger emphasis uh, in the existing litera- literature in the existing studies on the uh, you know uh, slavery and military uh, labor in the uh, in the context of uh, south asia so uh, the, the article actually started uh, as part of a project uh, that I asked as part of a fellowship that I was doing uh, back in 2016, uh, a joint fellowship between the uh, International Institute for Asian Studies and uh, African Studies Center, both institutes based here in Leiden. Uh, in the joint fellowship, I was trying to look at, you know, the sort of exchanges, intellectual exchanges. Uh, between asia and africa in the pre-modern period so uh, you know uh, and the article eventually like you know, i wrote a short piece uh, as a newsletter article in the is newsletter back in 2016 or 17 and uh, this article is a sort of developed form of that uh, piece and uh, what I try to explore, and also what I have been uh, ever since wanting to explore, is this—you uh, know—is uh, this exchange between uh, the two continents in the medieval uh, period or pre-modern period, uh, uh, in terms of ideas and intellectuals and so forth. So we don't immediately have, uh, explore, especially with regard to, with regard to the history of Islam, we don't explore, you know, Asians and Africans as the exporters of. You know, not necessarily exporters, but you know, as people who spread these religions in the in in both subcontinent in both uh, continents, it's mostly you know credited with one exclusively uh, you know with Arabs or even more specifically with Yemeni Arabs, uh, and that is mainly uh, I would say like you know because of the overemphasis on the role of Hadrami community that had uh, started mainly you know started uh, in the in the 18th, uh, 18th century, sorry, started a little bit earlier, but intensified in the 18th and 19th century. So, you know, Islam or the spread of Islam or the story of uh, the spread of Islam in these places in Asia, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, South Africa, East Africa, all these places have always been narrated or you know told in terms of, you know, a, a Yemeni story or Arab story you know, how Arabs came into these places and how they spread the religion. We rarely affiliate, you know, the spread of Islam with the, you know, spread of Africans in in South Asia, particularly in India. So this article is an attempt to look at how, you know, the different African communities came into the region as scholars, intellectuals, and, you know, worked in the places as, you know, religious leaders, as preachers, as Qadis, as judges, and so forth. And this is a preliminary study, but still, uh, we, uh, I present a few instances in which, you know, these, uh, jewel, these people, uh, you know, from the East African coast uh, came into the, you know, uh, both Malabar and Bengal. These are two places that I sort of I emphasize in the article and how they contributed to the making of Islamic communities in these places. So, they, and there is a fascinating story about, uh, you know, uh, about one specific figure, and that is you know, about whom Ibn Battuta, the Moroccan traveler, uh, who himself came from North Africa, who wrote extensively, uh, you know, his travel account uh, is very elaborate, but in that account also we see a lot of you know, African, people of African origin who work uh, in India and China and Maldives and so forth uh, in different roles as administrators, as, you know, as judges, as religious judges, as religious leaders, as benefactors and so forth. So in this particular instance, there is one very short, uh, you know, you could say one paragraph about one person called Faqih Sari. Who originally came from uh, Mogadishu, uh, but uh, spent about fourteen e- years each in Mecca and Medina, so twenty-eight years in total uh, in uh, in in Hijaz, and uh, eventually he went to China and you know worked there for a while, and then finally he ended up in a small port town uh, of the coast of. Uh, Sorry, in the, in the Malabar coast, on the Malabar coast. So his story uh, sort of uh, tells us, you know, Ibn Battuta mentions him very uh, briefly, and uh, possibly because you know Ibn Battuta, this was not an uh, exceptional case, an anomalous case. Rather, you know, he was sort of a similar figure uh, to Ibn Battuta, who himself travelled, you know, across these continents. So it must have been. Uh, wider phenomena and this uh, you know insight this fragmentary evidence gives us uh, insights to uh, this sort of you know uh, Mogadish uh, scholar from Mogadishu who built a career in a show, uh, in a port town called Erimala in Malabar and similarly we have we see you know I have written elsewhere and also briefly I mentioned this in the article as well about uh, about um, uh African agent, Abyssinian agent who worked for a Bengali uh, Sultan in the early 14th century uh, sorry, early 15th century and built uh, and managed to build a magnificent uh, law college you know, you could say Madrasa or Law College at that time you know, with uh, with enormous amount uh, or enormous amount of money that he brought to Mecca in the early 15th century. So the contemporary historian uh, Takayuddin Fasi who witnessed uh, the whole project of this establishment of the college as well as got eventually appointed as a professor of the Maliki or, or uh, the sheikh of the Maliki uh, Maliki School of Islamic Law. he writes uh, you know uh, in detail about this uh, this African agent you know in such high esteem and such high admiration, uh, towards this figure so we see like uh, similar uh, figures such as this Fa- uh, faqih saeed from the coast of kerala and uh, you know this uh, figure yakut al anani uh, you know, who comes from the uh, comes from bengal and then you know builds uh, an enormous building uh, enormous structure uh, in Mecca and possibly in Medina as well in fifteenth century. So similarly, you see a lot of figures, and I, I mention a few more uh, in the article who you know contributed to the very historical making of Islam. And these figures have you know been completely forgotten uh, in the in the narratives about the history of Islam uh, specifically, but also in the history of you know uh south asia at large where uh, we rarely acknowledge these these sort of figures who had uh contributed to the culture to the religion to the society uh, and so forth so this is you know still something you know i would say uh a note or an introductory essay or on, uh on uh, or into something that i would like to explore further to see further instances of uh, intellectual exchanges, religious exchanges, uh, before the Abyssinian dynasties or the the Hapshi dynasties were established. And in the uh, late 15th century, 16th century, and so forth, we have this uh, Abyssinian dynasty. sorry, the Hapshi dynasties, or you could say Siddhi dynasties, historians identified in different names. So uh, the dynasties, Uh, established by the people of African origin in South Asia. So you have these kingdoms uh, in Janjira, in Sachin, in in Bengal in uh, late 15th century, Uh, you know, and, you know, across the Tekkan uh, Plateau, where many of the African uh, mercenaries became very influential figures as, you know, rulers, as administrators, as prime ministers and so forth. So that mainly this sort of uh, events uh, or this sort of, you know, uh, increased presence of the African community in South Asia happened much, uh, mostly from late 15th century onward. And I would like to see uh, a period, like to explore, you know, a little bit earlier between 12th to uh, 15th century, what are the contributions of these, you know, uh, people in the making of history of Asia, at large history of Islam, and, uh, and you know, many uh, minor nodal points within this broader category. And uh, I'm sure the, you know, at this point, the evidences are very fragmentary, but definitely... Indeed, you know, and, sure and you draw are on these uh, alternative sources such as inscriptions
1: for writing this article, that, and, and that definitely we to need us. to think
2: on the about role of the African
1: many generation. historical experiences of African descent communities beyond just being menial labor, as often told in the historiography, but to think about their other labors uh, and, and worlds. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, yes, uh, now, we, now we can move to the modern period uh, with Sophia's article from Afro-Indians to Afro-Global Networking, yeah, exactly. Contemporary Identification yeah. and totally Unification agree. Processes amongst these. So how did African diasporic consciousness develop in South Asia? We heard a bit about the media and uh, the, the role of scholars in this regard. Uh, and, and, and who are uh, its actors, the actors of developing the diasporic consciousness? What are uh, its channels uh, and, and manifestations regionally and globally? And, and finally, in connection to this question, What gives the category Afro-Indian its political and social cohesion within the national and Pan-African context? Uh, Sophia, if, if you can speak up. Hello? Yes, I hear you now. Yes, go ahead.
0: Thank you so much for this question. And thank you so much for the intervention of Mahmoud and Khadija, which are really fascinating. Um. So what I have to try to bring out in my article is the fact that this African diasporic consciousness has been constructed in a complex manner as a minority affiliated to the same group by both Indian and global societies. In South Asian history, history, sorry, African people and their descendants have developed different empowerment strategies, such as creating African alliances, already articulating their self-conscious post-outsider identities to redefine themselves in Indian society. But in my fieldwork since 2014, mainly in Gujarat, Mumbai and Karnataka, I have seen this African diasporic consciousness growing, first, through the narratives of the cities themselves. There is also a self-identification with other cities from other parts of India whose existence many learned only, of only 20 years ago and with other people, people of African descent across the world. Finally, they are the existing and developing city network with other cities in the same region or country, but also with African descendants worldwide. It seems to me that the forms that these networks take and the structure they have developed into depends mainly on socially historical, economical and political contexts that city people have constantly had to adapt to. But it's interesting to note that the strategy has always been to unite following the idea that there is power in numbers. As the kind of cement to bring together these communities, people have used their African origins embodied in their CD phenotypes, phenotype, sorry, but also cultural elements as music and dance. From Gujarat to Mumbai, siddhis have been federating from several hundred years through Sufism. And by defini- defining their, their identity with the cosmology of veneration of African saints, were celebrated in music, dancing, rituals, and kinship symbolizing the transmission of their African roots. In the forest of North Karnataka, different city communities, either Christian, Muslim, or Hindu, used to exist. It's difficult to know exactly uh, how they were formed, because Karnataka cities survived in the forest of Uttara-Canada for several centuries. However, since the 80s, Leaders from different Christian, Muslim and Hindu siddhi communities have begun a process of unification and this transcends any religion boundaries that they exist in political, social, economic and artistic organizations or in marriages. It's not to say that the religion does not present a big obstacle to the unification process. In this states, uh, in Karnataka, it's uh, mainly city leaders and social workers who have worked to build a sense of unity and to promote like a city identity by asserting the value of their African origins and of a uh, city culture in order to try to improve the living condition of cities in this region, which can be very difficult. The aim was also to obtain scheduled tribe status so that they could access measures of affirmative actions or benefits from quotas or food ration, for example. Cities of Kutara, Canada, a district in Karnataka, have obtained scheduled tribe status in 2003, but in other districts where few cities lives, uh, this has never been granted. In Gujarat, only CDs in Saurashtra have obtained scheduled tribe status in 1956, and CDs of other areas are still fighting for it, trying to prove the government the state by marriages certificates, for example, that CD represent a larger community that's only in Saurashtra. Indeed, CD in Gujarat often stressed that their music performance, called the CD Goma or Damal, the common veneration of African Sufi saints or intermarriages does not bring enough benefits for the community and that they will need to unite and organise at the political and economic level. In the last years, for a few organizations between cities have been created to this purpose. For example, some cities in Gujarat aim to organise safaris for tourism. Their plan will be to improve African villages with to not to improve, sorry, to reproduce African villages with herds like Little Africa. Thus, unemployed CD could find work, and CD culture will be promoted. For instance, by performing CD goma, CD damal for tourists. This is showing how CDs adapt their strategies to the present economic context in India, as well as the government policies. On the national level, over the last decade. Network between cities from Gujarat, Mumbai, and Karnataka have developed. A national city federation called the All India City Foundation was created in 2015 between and by one city from Gujarat and one city from Karnataka, and uh, many Facebook and WhatsApp groups gathering cities from all over the country and few cities from Pakistan. Even though I mentioned that. They did not know each other's existence not that long ago. Since 2016, marriages between cities from Karnataka and Gujarat have even taken place with couples who met on Facebook. Before this, I was aware of one marriage between two Muslim cities from Gujarat and Karnataka about 10 years ago. The husband from Gujarat was a driver and lived in Karnataka and was introduced to a city woman from Karnataka because he was city. The example shows that Shows to what extent CDs are categorized as a caste, as a jati, as a community by by birth, based on their African origin embodied in their phynota type. Narratives of family histories uh, that I gathered in Gujarat and Diyu show that African children who served in Indian non-CD family were then married to another African or a CD woman or man of the nearest community. Thus, they were seen as the same group of people by the larger society. Also cities from Gujarat, Mumbai and Karnataka identify with the same jati. For <clears throat> for some, it was uh, through television only a few years ago that they noticed over African descendants who looked like them existed. Some cities told me how this discovery that over people like them existed gave a meaning for their difference always pointed out by their own society and also gave a meaning for their presence in india this awareness also come came from uh, visits of the re- of researcher journalist or or other people of african descent i'll come back to this uh, point later which is crucial in the development of the african diaspora consciousness i would like to insist on the fact that cities african origins have been largely highlighted by government programs, which promote the multiculturalism of India, but also by scholars' recent uh, interest in the African diaspora in the, uh, the, the Indian Ocean and the Africanness of Sidi, as Prita-Sandi mayors have stressed. In fact, it was through conferences, gathering cities from all over India, organized by researchers and the UNESCO in 2000 and 2006, that many cities learned Uh, of the existence of other city groups. Although these conferences hatched the idea of unification and helped development the African diasporic consciousness, network did not develop there, but inspired some city leaders and social workers about city unity. I will give now some examples of networks developing between cities and African people and try to show the influence that they also have been for the developing of African Diasporic Consciences. For example, Bosco Kabasi came to India from Uganda as a student in 1995. He began working for the education of young cities when he became aware of their presence in Karnataka. As a social worker, but also as a member of the Seven Days Adventist Church, we asked some of the church organizations to sponsor young CDs education in Adventist school. Thus, in 2005 and 2015, the mostly Ameri- uh, African-American group NAPS connected to the Seven Days Adventist Church uh, and traveled to Karnataka for missionary work. They offered to sponsor CDs education with the intention that they might later assist their, with their evangelical mission. Uh, In a recent NAPS meeting in South Africa, the Indian representative was CD. Today, many CD uh, involved in development projects speak fluent English, having received at least part of their education in the missionary school of the Seven Days Adventist Church, sent by Bosco, by NAPS, or spring of another Adventist group from Austria. Washington O'Bain, a Ghanaian-American scholar who has uh, written in this special issue, has also opened up transnational connection for cities. At the request of a South African colleague, Washington Oben facilitated the participation of three city men in the 8th Pad African Congress in Johannesburg. Thus, in 2014, Mohan, Jairam, and Ramnad, CD, uh, three Hindu city leaders and social workers, traveled to South Africa to represent cities in this Congress. Then, the South African academic himself, Visited city in Karnataka uh, along with Pashington O'Beng and encouraged Mohan, Ramnath, and Jairam to travel to Gujarat, Hyderabad, and Maharashtra to plan a pan-India city project. A few months later, Mohan was invited to participate in a conference in London organized by the UK Global African Congress, Pan-Africanist organization, on the question of reparation. In London, Mohan connected also. With uh, uh, Aja Nana Salifu Dagarti, a German of Ghanaian descent, Pan Africanist, humanitarist, agriculturist, and human rights activist. Also, the founder of her own organization, Salifu Dagarti Foundation, Aja traveled in India in 2017 uh, and 2018 to learn about cities and plan to work with them on different development projects, uh, as well as to discuss issues surrounding African identity. Some CD joined Haja's organization to provide her assistance or various projects. And then Aja went to Gujarat. And the first time she was in Gujarat, she was accompanied by a, uh, uh, a CD from Karnataka. Mohan also connected with CDs in Gujarat a long time ago uh, while he was uh, there assisting an English photographer. Um, and uh, for his photography projects about CDs. Since 2014, when my fieldwork began, many of our transnational connections has formed. To give a few more examples, in 2017, members of the Black Hebrew Israelite group, Mashaha Yashahala, visited the city in Karnataka and Gujarat. Their explicit aim was to convert people of African descent worldwide in their religion. Their mission interest, interested some cities in Karnataka, as African people were placed in the heart of the religions. But their missionary intent did not work in Gujarat, as Islam Sufism is of the great importance to Sidi's own understanding of their identity. In 2018 and 2019, encouraged by the radio program on Sidi's, Amadou Dembele Mali Bandagara, a Malian traveler's, traveler sorry, living in France, embarked on a journey across India to meet Sidi people and told me that uh, he used to travel to many parts of the world where African descent are living, as he wants to meet his own brothers and sisters. Those examples show how transnational connection with other people of African descent has promoted an African diaspora consciousness about city but also create or stimulate CD networks at the national level. Many exchanges between CD and other African descents also take place on social networks, and they exchange messages like about history of slavery, about black people placing the world, violence against black people, ideologies like blackness or Pan-Africanism. For example, the the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew Israelite, Israelite sorry, missionaries. Uh, contacted CD people in 2020. About 20 Muslim cities from Gujarat traveled to Gujarat, to, uh, from Karnataka, sorry, traveled to Gujarat to celebrate the Urs Festival of Babagor, the patron's African saint of the cities in Gujarat. CDs from both states met uh, in uh, pilgrimage in Ajmer in Rajasthan, and some of us uh, met in Facebook. They were both talking about. Um, inviting the cities of Karnataka in, in, in the Babagor uh, Wars Festival. In that way, Karnataka Sufi Muslim cities learn about the existence of the shrine, the Darga, of the Sidi Sufi saints in Gujarat. After having, having been a place of meeting for many cities in Gujarat, Babagor shrine might become a platform for Sufi city network at the national level. Who knows? Cities have understood that their uniqueness in India as African descendants would help them to open up new avenues on the national and transnational levels. Their hope is that the new connections they are building with will create opportunities for increased their social, their social mobilities. The unification processes I mentioned on the local, uh, regional, and national levels or the response of a minority oppressed for 100 years, uh, for 100 years in India. They follow the same logic as the, pan, uh, as the origins of the Pan-Africanism, in response to centuries of slavery, colonization, domination, and segregation. The main goal of Pan-Africanism, when it was created, was to help people protect their right, to encourage respect and equality, to promote education and access to higher social-political position, and to fight against racial, racial pressure through the world. Cidism, through, uh, through a different level and at different time, seems to follow a similar logic. But today, CD and Pan-Africanists, Cid and Pan-Africanists, are meeting, uh, and their story echoes each other. Certain... Um, Prominent African figures like Nelson Mandela are often mobilized during political struggles of the cities of Incarnataka. These also include Barack Obama, but also sports personalities, football or cricket players, and musicians of African descent, especially for younger generations. The latter often associate with a pan African identity more through Rastafari accessory and Afro music, Afro haircut all of which have become increasingly popular with the young cities of Karnataka and Gujarat. City leaders and social workers in both states know that putting forward the value of their African origin was a source of appeal, but also a symbol of a political struggle, and it could be used to try and shake off the shackles of history and of their black condition in India. Papendiai, a French historian who has worked on Black mi- minorities in France, described this Black condition as a social situation which is not that of a class, a caste, or a community, but whether that of a minority which shares the social experience of being considered as Black. This Black condition is shared and resonates today beyond the boundaries of the Black Atlantis described by Gilfroy, Gilroy, sorry, uh, as identification and networks develop with uh, overseas CD, cities over African descendants across the world beyond the confines of the Black Atlantic, um, there is indeed a real reflection that needs to be led around racialization of the African people and their descendants in South Asia in the ancient slave trade about colonialism and the building of the caste system. Cities, therefore. Uh, utilize different forms of agency on the global, local and global levels. They use their African origin as a federating element to try to renegotiate their social position in thank, India. Thank you,
1: Sophia, and emerge for this, uh, this detailed uh,
0: this uh, India, uh, exposition of, of the, of um, the African diasporic as uh, consciousness
1: and politics in South Asia. Um, well, we've taken a lot of your time, Ahmad Khadija and Sophia. And as much as I would like to continue, uh, I would like to ask you now what are you working on now? I'm not expecting you to be publishing uh, during this year, but um, if you would like to share uh, your current or future projects, uh, if any of you would like to go
2: first. Um, Not me this time. I I think I I started twice. Uh, If Sophia or Abija would like
0: to. I can, I can start, yeah, no problem. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm currently writing uh, my doctorate thesis and lecturing uh, also at uh, Toulouse University. I'm also organizing an uh, ethnology workshop for, uh, for schools in Toulouse uh, and also in Ariège in South France. After completing my PhD, I will be very interested in pursu- pursuing a postdoctorate. I'd like to go um, to gain new perspective of the processes of unification of Indian city by comparing and linking them with the experiences of Shidis in Pakistan and Kafirs in Sri Lanka. Uh, To that hand, I would like to carry out additional research, field work research in Pakistan and Sri Lanka. Another subject I'd like to explore uh, and that raises many questions is uh, that of the, the, the presence of the Sufi saint Babagor and my Mishra in Karnataka, even among Christian cities that city people have talked to me about. Uh, I, will, I, I will be delighted to take part of a collaborative project uh, in partnership with historian, linguists, and perhaps archaeologists to delve deeper into questions that my fieldwork has brought up, especially from the life story that I have collected. However, uh, I cannot deal with all the questions alone, and it will be it will take uh, the effort of a multidisciplinary team, uh, I think. Well, I'm also going uh, to apply to a position where I can uh, help uh, the development of social anthropology outside university because I'm convinced that anthropological reflection should be at the heart of our societies. And yet, uh, as things stand by now, most, most people are unaware of Field in, in <laughs> that existence. sounds all
1: fascinating. And, uh, also and, uh, hopefully hopefully I'll be waiting when for this end. Uh, what uh, about uh, you, Khatija? Like
0: a little bit of time uh, for other patients like uh, singing or yoga. Let's see.
3: Um, so, uh, first, thank you, Sophia and Mahmood. Just listening to you guys, uh, both of you, uh, one learns so much um, about the Indian Ocean. So, um, for my upcoming research, what I'm working on right now is on the emergence of possible. Uh, Muslim counterpublics. There has been a lot of uh, discussion and debate around the concept of Islamophobia. And um, given my research on identity, questions related to identity, the adequacy of uh, categories, uh, modern categories, uh, if they're able to capture our existence or not uh, as human beings, um if they are able to compartmentalize us as human beings or not um and given my um experience in the last few years uh, with uh, international human rights uh, organizations i think um i am at a position now to uh, engage with questions related to the possible um, emergence or existence of uh, of a muslim public or muslim publics or counterpublics. So in the context of South Asia, especially India, um, uh, I uh, have started working on um, a certain um, possible counterpublics. So uh, journalists in Kashmir, for example, and the narrative that they present about Kashmir, how that allows for the creation of a counterpublic, not just a Kashmiri counterpublic, but also a larger Muslim counterpublic, possibly within the political context of uh, India and South Asia. So um, this is the current ongoing research. I'm. Um, it's it's still in the process of. Um, it's still in the process of uh, being. Um, Drafted and uh, designed, so um, I'm not sure if Kashmir will be the site of focus or if there will be other sites of focus as well, but I would really like to uh, come back to Indian Ocean because that remains um, possibly uh, my um primary interest as far as research goes. So I would like to also see how possible counterpublics are emerging in, in in and around South Asia. And I think there's a lot of political developments as far as a student of IR goes um, with uh, around the Indian Ocean, especially Western Indian Ocean, political developments, uh, for example, where you are located, Ahmed, uh, with uh, UAE and certain policy decisions that have happened now and certain discourses and counter discourses that are happening. Within the Gulf uh, political, uh, that so, all sounds very uh, I'm, interesting. I'm still developing uh, this. And last uh, but not least, so hopefully uh, in the years to come, or in in a year or two, I would be able to um, publish something out of it as well. Uh,
2: yeah, I will. Uh, I try to be very brief. Uh, although you know, I have been working on multiple projects simultaneously. I would say uh, for next two years, uh, next few years, what I'll be mostly focusing on this. Current project that I have, uh, uh, I have been pursuing for the last few years on the matrilineal slash matriarchal communities of the Indian Ocean world. Uh, so there are these multiple communities in which women were at the center of, you know, property regime inheritance and so forth. So I would like to study these communities in a connected and comparative perspective uh, in Mozambique, in uh, in Comoros, in India, in uh, Sri Lanka. Indonesia and Malaysia and so forth. So that is one main project, and the second uh, work, uh, which is also sort of anchored in the Indian Ocean, but slightly away from it, uh, is the is a sort of source publication on the Malabar Rebellion that had happened in the uh, between 1792 and 1922 uh, as part of the larger you know, sort of anti-colonial, uh, anti-imperialistic rebellions. So that is the second project besides the publication. That, of, that's
1: great. Uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll be anticipating all of the these fantastic projects. Hopefully and hopefully maybe we can have you again on the podcast. So uh, thank you for this conversation this in which we learned a lot really about Africa and South Asia and their interconnections. And thank you for the listeners for staying with us uh, to learn and explore the special uh, about the special journal issue narrating Africa and South Asia, published in South Asian History and Culture, uh, volume 11, issue 4, in two thousand uh, 2020. This is your host, Ahmed El Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.